This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Everything Compliance, the only roundtable podcast in compliance. First, have you ever considered starting your own podcast? As I've expanded the Compliance Podcast Network, I'm certainly looking for new podcasts. So this leads to a word from our sponsor today, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. Today, we're going to take a look at the post-election situation around compliance and ethics. Jonathan Armstrong is going to take a look at what it may mean for prosecution of data privacy, data protection in Europe in view of the Trump administration's antipathy towards our allies in Europe. Matt Kelly looks at new challenges for compliance officers based upon the actions of the Trump administration, what it may mean in the corporate world. Jay Rosen considers the speech by John Cronin in late November and why businesses are part of the fight against bribery and corruption. And Michael Volkoff takes a look at the changes under the Department of Justice, or rather in the Department of Justice, under the new Attorney General. This is a two-part episode. Today we're going to have Jonathan Armstrong and Matt Kelly next week. Jay Rosen and Michael Volkoff's rants will follow next week's episode. This is Tom Fox. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of Everything Compliance, the only roundtable podcast in compliance. The Everything Compliance gang consists of Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Cordery in London, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Jay Rose and Mr. Monitors with Affiliated Monitors, and Mike Volkoff, founder of the Volkoff Law Group. This is going to be our post-election roundup. We have regularly checked in on compliance and ethics uh, in the context of the current administration and having had the midterm elections where it turned out the blue wave did hit, 40 seats changed in the House of Representatives uh, for the Democrats, uh, what may portend for compliance and ethics going forward. So we're going to go today uh, as the sun rises, and that means we're going to start with Mr. Armstrong over in the United Kingdom. We had, uh, I thought, some fairly stunning news uh, this week out of the United Kingdom around data privacy, data protection, Facebook, and where that may be going. And I don't know, Jonathan, if that would be part of your remarks, but from where you sit and certainly what you do in terms of data privacy, data protection, how, if any, would the U.S. midterm elections uh, uh, impact that? And I suppose we, you, you're going to need to throw in Brexit or non-Brexit as well. Yeah, um, 
well, if you're going to mention Brexit, I should explain that the, the, the screaming behind is actually me. So Brexit <laughs> is is a mess. The only thing that keeps us sane is is your politics, to be honest, Tom. Uh, if not, ours would be truly depressing. Um, but um, yeah, Facebook's a good place to start, I think. I think we have predicted, haven't we, on this podcast that there's going to be really unusual things around GDPR and privacy generally. And I think we've talked a little bit before about the Information Commissioner's investigation into the influencing of elections and in particular Facebook posts, which may or may not have been paid for by people that Michael Cohen met up with. And um, and the UK Information Commissioner's as you might say in the US, gone big on this investigation. She's had 40 full-time members of staff on it and, and 20 people hired in to help. But this week's developments are really quite unusual indeed in that uh, a, a company, and you couldn't make a lot of this up, uh, a company set up in the US to, I mean, in some respects, similar to how Facebook started, to gather uh, pictures of girls in bikinis from uh, Facebook and to somehow rate them or compare them. And Facebook didn't uh, like what these guys were doing, it seems, and uh, removed uh, their uh, access rights or some of their access rights to uh, interact with Facebook and litigation ensued. And in the US, there have been fairly extensive disclosure slash discovery um, proceedings, as is usual. And there were a bunch of documents uh, disclosed as a result of that litigation. Now, fast forward, and an executive from the corporation visits the UK. And somehow, people uh, find out, or Parliament, the UK Parliament, finds out that this individual is in the UK and that he might have documents which Parliament might find useful for their forthcoming questioning of Facebook, which took place on Tuesday. Now, um, Parliament has some strange and uh, and some would say archaic, I prefer the word historic powers, to uh, ask people to cooperate with its parliamentary inquiries. And they asked this individual to cooperate. And when he didn't, the sergeant at arms went to visit him in, a, in his hotel room. And it seems now persuaded him to open his laptop, access Dropbox in the parliamentary premises and hand some documents over to the investigation. And it also seems as if one of the parliamentarians involved, and I should stress this is rumour rather than fact, but it seems that one of the parliamentarians involved also questioned the individual concerned as well. And another point, again, I stress rumour, not fact. How did they know that he was in the UK? Well, there's been all sorts of conspiracy theories that I've seen on the internet, people saying that this was Theresa May's doing and the UK government's doing. I don't think that that's true at all. 
people saying that the security services were involved. I'm not sure that's true. And it now seems that the finger is pointing at one particular journalist who's, who's known for uh, campaigning uh, on these issues. And it seems that she may have spoken to the individual involved who'd mentioned that he was passing through London. Uh, according to him, he uh, mentioned to her and, and possibly her alone which hotel he was staying in. And that's how he was easy to locate. But beside the whole issue of the documents, the investigation itself that the UK Parliament is undertaking is, I think, really quite interesting from a compliance perspective. So the investigation was started by a UK parliamentary committee and they invited parliamentarians from other countries to have a joint questioning session. So on Tuesday, we had a joint hearing involve, in London involving the parliaments of the UK, Argentina, Belgium, Brazil, Canada, France, Ireland, Latvia, and Singapore. So get that for a, a, a fantasy football league team. Um, and, and they all uh, got together in London and arranged, uh, I watched some of it uh, on TV, arranged this questioning session that, to my view, was far better in its structure than both the US hearings and the hearings that took place uh, in, the, uh, in, in Brussels. Admittedly, they didn't have Mark Zuckerberg. They did have uh, Lord Allen, who is one of Facebook's senior executives and leads for them on policy. But the way in which these parliamentarians, um, uh, uh, what's a better word than played nicely, to try and discuss different aspects of Facebook's activity and how they ought to be regulated and their role in elections, etc., I thought was quite edifying and, um, and, and shows that um, for those who are in any doubt after the US hearings particularly, that parliamentarians can have knowledge of technology. And it was heartening that this set of parliamentarians at least understood some of the issues. And that's, of course, important because if you don't understand technology, you can't regulate it effectively. And uh, Richard Allen discussed at some length uh, the issues around elections in various countries. And undoubtedly, uh, that's you know, a topic for discussion in the US as well, if, as now seems likely, there was uh, you know, Russian involvement in your election, uh, not, not the last one, but the one before, and Russian election, uh, Russian influence in the Brexit campaign, as now seems likely as well. So I thought a pretty fascinating week in politics, fascinating week for GDPR, and a fascinating week for technology and compliance. Jonathan, if I could ask, was there any information that became public from the documents? Uh, which you were previously not aware of or even surprised you? Yeah, we've not really seen the documents uh, themselves yet. Uh, I know some people say that they have seen bits of the documents. As I understand it, there's a redaction process ongoing at the moment 
as I understand it, this particular committee have possession of some or all of the documents. The uh, chair of the UK Parliamentary Committee has said that he believes that he has the power to publish them, and he said that he intends to do so. But he said that he intends to redact them first. I mean, obviously, it would be somewhat ironic if the documents weren't redacted and the Parliamentary Committee investigating data privacy breaches committed one in its release of the evidence. Um, uh, and, and I know from the work that we do on behalf of clients uh, responding to subject access requests, for example, that, that redaction is the sort of thing that you quite often say, sure, sure, we'll redact them. It'll take a couple of hours. And, you know, three weeks later and 100 bottles of Tipex or later, you're thinking to yourself, yeah, this wasn't as easy as I thought it was to start off with. So I suspect that that's a process that's ongoing at the moment. I know that the committee wants to release more documents. And my understanding is that there will be some uh uh, that there will be some interesting uh, things in those documents. Now, it's important to stress, of course, that Facebook say that the people that they're in litigation with, uh, I'm paraphrasing uh, uh, Richard's words and his letter, are somewhat unprincipled, and we oughtn't to lose sight of the fact that these are people who, um, who you know, are trying to make a living out of sharing pictures of women in bikinis and, and we ought to sort of qualify the quality of the evidence they're giving in that light. And I, I think that's fair, but I think that there will still be some surprises in this evidence uh, that the, the parliament will release. And I suppose I'd say that if there weren't, why would Facebook resist? Hey, Jonathan, I have a question for you. Um, uh, so I have kept one eye on the Facebook news this past week, and oh. I continually hear lawmakers and Facebook users and people in the public saying, OK, yes, it's time to regulate Facebook. Fine if that is the contention they want to put forward. But I'm still at a loss as to what sort of concrete regulatory proposals has anybody really been putting forward? Like I, I would say yeah. – Facebook is a monopoly, but given the nature of what it does, I don't think we're going to bust up Facebook into Facebooklets. Um, and then if you want to regulate it in some extra way that like the GDPR does not, you know, I just it sounds like a good idea right until you push people to ask regulate them. How has anybody addressed the how question so far? No, I think that's a I think that's a great question. And I guess I should have given a disclaimer from the start to say that I I do know uh, Richard Allen personally. He was kind enough to write the foreword for a book I wrote back in 2004. And I know from personal experience that he's somebody who has thought about those issues for a long, long time, particularly the influence of social media on elections. And I also know for a fact that, that Richard has tried to look at the good and the bad there as well. For example, uh, he was instrumental in a campaign to use Facebook to encourage people to get out and vote. You know, whatever they voted for, 
just to get out and vote and embrace democracy. So I think Facebook and Richard have done uh, things to promote democracy. I think we need to get a, a sort of balanced perspective. And I think that they have said, and, and he did say at the hearing, that in some respects, they, particularly in the political arena, particularly in the area of elections, Facebook would rather not say, um, yeah, uh, we do not allow campaigns funded by Nation A to have, uh, you know, ad to advertise on an election in Nation B. Facebook want each country to set their own rules and, and for that country's parliament to give Facebook, if you like, the list of what's allowed. And, and, and Facebook seemed to be saying that they're prepared to police it against that list. There was a particularly good exchange on that, as I recall it, with the um, representative of the Irish parliament. Uh, and I think that was uh, Hildegard Norton. And I think she's extracted some of it on her Twitter feed, but but I, I, and, and I believe that that uh, Ms. Norton is is looking at rules around uh, elections, etc., for Facebook to police. And and I got the impression that Facebook was saying, yeah, they will put resources into doing that, but it shouldn't be Facebook setting out what is and is not democratic. It should be the parliaments in each of those countries that decide that. So, uh, Matt Kelly, what do you see in terms of either uh, regulatory changes, uh, investigation changes from the new Congress, or perhaps do you see um, compliance officers having a new and different set of challenges uh, or maybe exponentially uh, more of the same challenges they had under the first two years of Trump? Uh, so, yeah, sure. What should ethics and compliance officers expect now that Democrats have their hands on the House of Representatives uh, for the next two years? I think um, all of the headaches that you have had for the last certainly 12 months and probably since the Trump administration took office, uh, frankly, I think we're going to have more headache. And here is how I would break things down. Um, first, we could very easily knock down what is not likely to happen with Democrats in charge of the House of Representatives. I think we are not likely to see a whole lot of big legislative change uh, because there's almost no overlap and no common interest anymore between Democratic and Republican lawmakers in the U.S. Congress. So, you know, where, where could they actually form any consensus on big legislative uh, arenas. I, I don't really see very many at all. For example, reform on taxes. Uh, I know we just had a Tax Reform Act, and now suddenly everybody is shocked that the Tax Reform Act did not deliver on the promises it was made. Uh, you know, it exploded the deficit. We haven't really seen any uptick in the good rate of job creation that we already had. We have not seen any new increase in wages, um, but we do have a gigantic deficit. And there's been some talk that maybe uh, we would raise the corporate interest uh, tax rate uh, a few percentage points. Like I, I just don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. I don't think we're going to see any big legislative proposals on trade policy. Um, in theory, 
There is a, the Jobs Act 3.0, which is about capital formation for smaller businesses. It's a lingering out there in this lame duck session right now. The House had passed it under Republican control. Will the Senate pick it up before the Senate adjourns for the year? I very much doubt that. And then we're back to would a new financial services committee under control of Chairman Maxine Waters from Los Angeles, would she put forth some sort of regulatory rollback? I don't think so. Would she put forward some sort of capital formation bill? Maybe. But would that look like anything that the Senate would like? I don't know. It's anyone's guess. But I don't think we're going to get anything like that. The only exception I will maybe give a caveat for, I suspect we will see some sort of major privacy legislation in this country, because I think all lawmakers in Congress now get it that you know we can't ignore this anymore. Um, now, what would that privacy legislation actually look like? Who knows? Uh, because Democrats and Republicans had some hearings about a nationwide breach disclosure law earlier in 2018. They were on very different sides about that. And this is one of those issues that pits states against the federal government. And that cuts across partisan lines. So, again, the politics of getting a nationwide breach protection law is really difficult, but the urgency of it is great. So I maybe could see something like that. Um, But back to my previous question about, you know, hey, let's regulate Facebook because there's talk about that in Congress, too, right up until you get to the exactly how question. And I haven't really heard too many people talking about that in Congress yet. So I don't know. Maybe we might see some sort of nationwide breach disclosure law. I don't know that we're going to see much else other than the usual partisan fights and bickering over budgets and government shutdowns and all that stuff. Here's what is going to happen, I think, with Democrats in charge. Um, We're going to see a lot more oversight of the Trump administration. We haven't really seen any oversight from Republicans for the last two years. So really what's happened is we've had this oversight deficit since 2016. And now I think House Democrats are going to try and make up for that deficit. So you're going to see a lot of oversight. Well, what does that actually mean? Um, for executive agencies. And these are the agencies that all of you compliance officer listeners, you know, like you look to them for guidance about what you're supposed to worry about. Uh, Well, these agencies are going to be pinned down in more hearings, more investigations, more information requests, more subpoenas, uh, more infighting. All of that on one level slows down government agencies because their ability to do their job of telling you what you should worry about is uh, weakened because they're distracted by all these congressional oversight requests. Um, And you will still have a lot of that. I think, um, you know, that's going to get exacerbated. Meanwhile, on another level, think about this. As nothing is getting done on the legislative level, like I mentioned a moment ago, what does that mean? It means the Trump administration is going to try to move ahead with more regulatory changes anyways. It's going to be a lot like, I think, what the Obama administration was trying to do in the second term when it was Congress was completely under Republicans' control. And so the Obama administration couldn't really find much working ground with them. Therefore, it moved ahead with all sorts of uh, executive actions on its own. Um, think about what that means, however. That means leg- litigation. That means lawsuit challenges, all sorts of fights and fights and fights. 
I think we're also going to see more of that. So what really is that going to mean for compliance officers? You know, I'm not certain, but a lot of the frustration that you might have over inaction, uh, over employees, civil servants, uh, employees of federal agencies who you had been working with, they get exasperated and they, they leave to go work at a big law firm or a consulting firm. They go to work for you or wherever, but you don't have anyone at the other end of the phone when you want to call up a regulatory agency or they, they don't have enough manpower to move in a timely manner. I think that might very well get worse, and we should prepare ourselves for that. But the one thing that I do think is going to probably weigh on compliance officers a lot uh, is something that I, I was thinking a lot about over the last several months before the election. You have to remember, Donald Trump wants a fight with Congress. He wants to frame his whole reelection as him under siege by Democrats, and it is their fault, and I'm going to blame them for everything. So how would he pick those kind of fights? He would pick them by, as we have seen for two years that he's been in office, he's going to double down on every single policy the stance that he wants to take. So he doesn't want just $1.5 billion for the wall or $5 billion for the wall. He wants $25 billion, and we're going to build a 40-foot wall with concrete and sensors from California to the Rio Grande. And if we don't, I'm shutting down the whole southern border. He's, you know, He said that within the last week. Um, it is those sort of doubling down and picking fights with Congress that he's going to do. Here is how that drives up the tension for corporations and people at corporations who might be in charge of things like third-party risk and policy development and unhappy employees, such as ethics and compliance officers, is that all of this is going to make those political tensions we have seen and endured for the last two years, which have been nobody's idea of a good time. I think we're going to see those get even worse. So, for example, two things that we saw within the last six months. Uh, Google had a bunch of its employees tell Google's corporate leaders, we do not want to work on a new artificial intelligence contract that Google had been bidding on for the Pentagon. Um, as I understand it, Google already had a contract that was up for renewal, and the employees said, no, 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 we don't want to do this because we don't like the Trump administration. So don't do it. And Google had no choice but to drop out of the bidding on that contract because what are you going to do when your employees say no? You're going to fire your best and your brightest. They're not going to care. They're going to have new jobs before they hit the parking lot. Um, and that sort of dynamic in a healthy economy allows employees to express their displeasure with the Trump administration and stick it to the company's ethical values in a really difficult way. And we saw that with Salesforce and the uh, working with the customer customs and border patrol agents. Uh, there was Salesforce was under pressure to stop providing services to them. You're going to see that over and over again. Michael Cohen, when he was working on those contracts with Novartis and AT and T, was it legal when Novartis and AT and T signed those contracts? Yes. Did people like it? No. So what happened? They threw those contractors over the side at Novartis and AT and T because working with the Trump administration became radioactive. Now, certainly for some minority of the country and the companies out there, the opposite is true. If you are a big gun manufacturer, you want to give the Trump administration a great big hug as much as you can. And uh, you know, you're going to have to figure out how to navigate that. So I call it this third-party political risk. 
with the customer is the Trump administration. Huge risks there that um, companies are going to have to figure out. And here's the other issue that I want to put to compliance officers, because one of your own gave me this example. And I don't know how a company necessarily would solve this. But uh, they had an employee, and this was at a large global company in what I will only identify as a Trump state. An employee started pulling into the parking lot with a pickup truck plastered with Trump support bumper stickers and Confederate flags. And there is a stereotype, right or wrong, about that type of person. And other employees started complaining to HR that they didn't necessarily like that employee expressing himself so stridently. What are you going to do? Now, you might at first say, well, we're not really going to do anything. We don't want to get into the, the habit of policing employees' political views. What would you do if they complained like that after that other Trump uh, supporter, Caesar Sayok, started mailing pipe bombs through the, ma- the mail to various media? And you now suddenly people could credibly say some Trump administration supporters are kind of nuts and we don't like that guy. Maybe he's kind of nuts because look at all the bumper stickers all over his truck. And that actually that happened. There is a compliance officer who may very well be listening to this podcast. This was a problem that landed on her desk. Now, I'll go one further. This did not happen with her, but here's a hypothetical I could easily see. What if all of your black and Latino employees file a group complaint over some other employee like that? Now, suddenly, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, because either you're cracking down on some Trump supporter against his political views or you're alienating minority employees. You have to have a policy that straddles those things. That is a problem that could very easily have happened in 2018 during the election run-up. And I think it will happen again over and over because this is the sort of fight that Donald Trump wants. This this is the consequence of it in the real environment here. And we can't ignore the fact that the intense polarized politics this country has has real consequences for large groups of people who happen to be working at a large company. Compliance officers and HR people, you're stuck in the middle of that. And I don't know what sort of answer you have. But those are the sort of things that I think we're going to see more of because Donald Trump is going to crank it up to 11 as the corruption allegations close in around his neck, as his reelection comes up and he is not in a good place to get reelected right now. It is very touch and go. He's going to be looking to lash out. And when he lashes out at the other party, that ricochets through the larger world of uh, the body politic and corporations work there. Employees are part of the body politic and those echo in the sort of policy disputes that you're going to wind up having a referee. That's uh, that's what I see. So, Matt, let me pick up on your last point uh, or maybe a couple of points, <clears throat> starting with the third party political risk. But moving that towards your, your last example, where it, uh, an employee expressed their political views that uh, either offended or were antithetical to other other employees. Uh, do you think those sorts of dispute resolutions and or policies really fall within the purview of the compliance function, or is that a broader conversation that needs to be held in the um, organization? I don't think that compliance officers need to start coming up with those policies on their own. I do think that HR 
is probably the one who's going to have to you know try and write the policy probably in consult consultation with the legal department but um i do think that those kind of conversations when they get really difficult compliance officers will probably want to be aware of it and while we talk about regulatory compliance and anti-corruption and due diligence and all this stuff, we have to remember the full title is ethics and compliance officer. And the ethics part is getting really difficult because Donald Trump's rhetoric is fusing political stances and ethics into one and the same. So suddenly employees could stand up and say something like, well, of course, you're an unethical company. You're allowing the, the, this, this pro-Trump uh, stance to exist here while I feel threatened. And if you're not backing up me, why should I care about the ethics that you tell me? You know, and those are conversations that might very plausibly happen, questions that might be asked. And you know, it's going to pierce through to a lot of what does the company actually stand for? What are its ethical values? And right or wrong, a lot of people are going to conflate ethical values with partisan politics and support. I don't know that that's a good idea, but we'd be fools to say that doesn't happen. It happens in this country now all the time. If somebody disagrees with you politically, they are unethical. And that is true whether you're a Republican accusing a Democrat or a Democrat accusing a, a Republican. And if as soon as we get into talking about ethics – the ethics and compliance officers are going to wind up having this somehow be streaking across their desk, I think. They're going to have to think about it. They're going to have to have a good answer. Or you know, you're going to have to tell the board and the CEO and HR and everybody else, you know, we can't avoid thinking about this problem. We're burying our heads in the sand if we don't. So, Jonathan, do you have a question for Matt? Yeah, I do, actually. Um, I, I've always thought this is that the, the sort of almost – nailing your colours to the wall about politics is, is, is a real point of difference, certainly between the UK and the US. Uh, in, in the UK, there's a film which I guess is about the 1950s, one of Peter Sellers' first films, where he plays a trade union official and he is asked about his politics and he says, I think my politics is a matter for me and the ballot box. And and that's almost the British psyche in a nutshell. You know, I've had, um, thankfully, Mrs. Armstrong never listens to these, but I've had, <laughs> I've had, I've had maybe you know, fifteen years of domestic turmoil after elections with, you know, the stock answer of every Englishman uh, when asked who you voted for is to say, I think my politics are a matter for me in the ballot box. Um, and that, I think, is in contrast. When I started working for American corporations, I guess, back in early 2000, where, uh, you know, a lot of my clients, uh, it was easy to see their political persuasion from their donations. And then, at least anecdotally, I've seen quite a lot of tension with U.S. law firms, particularly with a U.K. office, where the UK partners are, let's use the word encouraged, to donate to a politi particular political cause. And the UK way, A, isn't to donate to political causes much at all, and B, you know, not to do that publicly, and C, not to do that to a foreign political cause rather than your own domestic election. And I'm wondering if a lot of this, at the end of the day, is to do with campaign finance. You know, in the UK, 
you're very limited as to how much you can spend on an election. So um, I, I'm saying this over simplistically, but you don't need to raise that much cash because you're not allowed to spend it. Versus mm -hmm. in the US, I guess, it's more of a marketing effort, isn't it? There is a need to raise cash. People are using pretty advanced CRM techniques, call centers, et cetera, et cetera, because the political machine just sucks up cash. And I guess it's too late to put the genie back in the bottle, is it? But do you think that's a tension? Um, you know, I'm not sure that it is, because one thing I, I looked at with the results of the 2018 election is that uh, Democrats outraised and outspent Republicans, I think, as a whole and on many different congressional races. But that's because they the Democrats were very good at crowdsourcing their campaign finance now. And um, much of what the Democrats raised and spent came from very small individual donors because they have this Act Blue network that makes it very easy for everybody to, you know, I'm just going to drop 15 bucks to Act Blue this month and then next month and whatnot. Um, right. So as much as I do think we are in dire need of getting money out of politics in the United States, I don't know how much that drove a lot of the tensions here. But um, another example came to my mind as, as I was kind of rolling over your question here that I could also easily see coming up at a large company is you might have a policy that says the company and all its employees will always cooperate with a federal investigation and law enforcement. Sounds good. Sounds sensible. Right up until the immigration agents show up to pluck a dreamer student uh, out of the workforce, out of the office, and haul him or her away to a detention center. And now mm -hmm. suddenly all of your employees, or you probably your most highly educated and therefore your most valuable employees, are going to be saying, this is deplorable. This is not what we want. This person has been in the United States since he or she was a toddler, and now they're 25. And you, company, we're not going to obey this policy, and we expect you to back us up and back this employee, even if it means thumbing our nose at the Trump administration's immigration policies. Now, again, what are you going to do if you're a big corporation? This is not a fight I think most big corporations want to have, but we are kidding ourselves if we are thinking that this is not a, an issue that large companies are going to have to deal with. They are. If you have a big, diverse workforce, you're going to bump into this. And um, Donald Trump has an incentive right now to inflame tensions with uh, Democrats and Republicans, executive versus legislative. But a majority of America lives in areas that vote Democrat. I have looked this up. I could give you the stats if you wanted. And a majority of the economic output comes from people who are in Democratic areas. And here is Donald Trump inflaming them in a way that is guaranteed, I think, to spill into the workforce and to questions about what does this company actually stand for. I don't have a good answer, but all of this is going to get worse now that Democrats have a much stronger punch that they can throw back at Donald Trump because now they control one chamber of House of Congress. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this part one of our two-part podcast series on the effect of the 2018 midterm elections on compliance, compliance professionals, and the compliance programs going forward. Join us again next week when Jay Rosen and Michael Volkoff give us their thoughts. And also, we will follow with rants next week. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. 
Everything Compliance is the only roundtable podcast in compliance. It is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>